Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. It is Wednesday, June 5th, 2019. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, we'll be speaking with Michael Rea, an architect with Studio IO, and we'll be talking about the importance of beauty in church architecture, how it communicates something about our faith, and how the fire at Notre Dame has something to tell us about the importance of architecture. Before we do that, though, I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn, Bryan College Station, and also welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and in addition to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. This early part of the show is live, so if you have any comments that you would like to call in about what's going on at your parish, feel free to call us. The number is 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. The second part of the show with Michael Rea will be pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in, or at least we won't answer the phone. Before we get too far into the program, I want to welcome Dennis, who's engineering Howdy. for us this morning, since Daddy has had to be out, and Dennis, Howdy. you still got to hang for this? Howdy, Deacon Mike. Uh, that's yet to be determined. It's been a while since I've been at the, the controls, so I fully trained and then let go, and yeah, so so far so good. We may have a little bit of an internet issue with one of our radios, but um, that's sometimes out of our control, so... Well, the thing, a nice thing is that, you know, anything I do wrong, I'm blaming on the <laughs> person sitting at the controls. Well, I've got, uh, we've got a mic trifecta today at the show today. Yes, we do. A deacon mic, a, a mic, and a mic, a mic little Michael. Yes, so, yeah, it, we're, we're doing great. Yes. Uh, well, in a minute, we'll be talking to Michael Bonin for the uh, Central Checkers Men's Fellowship. And, uh, but before we get onto that, uh, uh-huh. Saturday, we had something that we haven't done before. We Brand did a new. summer kickoff, and I was there briefly. Dennis wasn't able to go, but uh, what I saw of it, it was absolutely wonderful. I heard we had about 15 or so families that came in. It was a nice uh warm day at, at the park, but we wanted to do something special for our listeners, and so we we wanted to have a summer family kickoff. We had lots of Great folks from around the Brazos Valley that came in and enjoyed the splash pad and the playground and uh, some food that was donated by Chick-fil-A and and some chips and sodas and water and just, you know, um, you know, I heard some folks brought in some casseroles and it was just, you know, a really great event and people enjoyed it, had some prayer at the end uh, with Monsignor McCaffrey came in and they said the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So it was I think great times held by all, and we wanted to be able to just get people together and have fun. And the nice thing about events like this, it brings the entire Catholic community together. It's not just one parish or another parish. Right. 
but it was people from all the parishes in the local area that came together and celebrated being Catholic and mm-hmm. just had a good time. That's the intention is we wanted to be able to get people together and just have fellowship. And and it's important to recreate ourselves through recreation. That's what the word means. And so getting together just to have fun and not to have any other agenda but but that, enjoy each other's company. So it was a very great event. Thank you for all those that came out. Uh, Angelo Okonski, an amazing volunteer who connected all the people together and coordinated all this, really was the backbone of this whole event. So thanks be to God. If you want to volunteer for Red Sea, look us up on our website, give us a call, contact us. We would love to have you involved as well in the Waco area, Palestine area. We would love to have these types of events in your area as well. We wanted to try it out first here. It was very successful, so look for something like that, hopefully in the future to come, in your areas as well. Yes, and uh, as I always tell people, anytime they tell me, you know, we really need to do this, I say thank you for volunteering to run this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because I think uh, everything that we do, especially for like a nonprofit radio station, we need volunteers to help kick these things off. So if you're in Waco or Palestine and you want something like this, call the radio station or yeah, look us up on the website redcradio.org. It has all our contact information there. Uh, even has a place you can click on where you can volunteer and what your expertise is. So we would love to to hear from more volunteers like Angela Okonski. Thank you again, Angela, and her whole family that just did so much. And it was a great time. Lots of games and fellowship and food and a lot of fun. I couldn't agree more. Before we move to Michael Bonin, one brief announcement at St. Anthony's here in Bryan. We are celebrating the Feast of St. Anthony of Padua on June 13th, which is Thursday, with a Mass starting at 6 p.m. and followed by a procession around the campus of our uh, parish. You're invited to take part in this, and uh, this is always a wonderful opportunity, especially since we do have a first-class relic of St. Anthony, which is going to be taking part in the procession. So I uh, invite everybody to come out for the Mass at 6 p.m. All right. Uh, we're going to talk to Michael Bonin now, who is with the Catholic Men's Fellowship. And good morning, Michael. Good morning, Deacon Mike. How are you today? I am absolutely wonderful and thrilled to be here. And I'm happy to have you here with well, us today. Well, I'm very happy to be here as well. So what can you tell us about the summer programs for the Catholic Men's Fellowship? Well, I want to start by talking about a uh, new program that we have over here at St. Mary's. Uh, We meet uh, men of the parish, and a few outside maybe, meet every Wednesday morning from 7 to 8.30 a.m. in room 201. And uh, right now we're going through a book called How to Be a Catholic Man in the World Today. And... uh, just to give listeners an idea, um, we uh, today's topic was on our dependence on God. And uh, so we start by reading some scripture, some catechism readings on that topic. Uh, and then men share from their lives on, on this particular topic. And so it really ends up men, men teaching each other just through their lives and also with um, a framework of scripture and teachings of our Catholic faith. Sounds extremely uh, interesting. Now, you said that's here at St. Mary's? Yes. Now, do you have programs 
at other parishes in the area? Yes, there are a number of churches in the area that have uh, men's ministry or men's fellowship programs going on. Um, there's, I guess, just starting from the top, St. Thomas Aquinas um, meets every Thursday morning, um, beginning at 6 a.m. with a full breakfast. They're taking a, a two-week break for right now, so they'll get going again. Um, let's see, I believe June 20th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, St. Anthony's, um, they're taking a summer break, but they'll be starting back on August 24th, and uh, they meet every other Saturday from 7 to 8.30 in the youth room at the Malinowski Center. Um, St. Joseph's is taking a summer break right now, uh, but they'll kick off again in September. Um, Santa Teresa is about to kick off. They're going to be starting a program July 12th. They're very excited over there. Uh, St. Mary's in Caldwell, um, they meet uh, every other Saturday, so their next meeting will be uh, June 8th from 7 to 8.30. Uh, and then fi finally, St. Mary's in Hearn just started a group. So we've got a group in Hearn, and they meet every other Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m., and their next meeting is June 6th. So if... One of our listeners is a man belonging to one of these parishes that has not heard about this. How do they go about contacting someone about joining this, or do they just show up? Probably the best thing to do is just to show up. Um, each group advertises in their bulletins, so that's probably the best time to confirm their next meeting. Um, but really, we, for instance, we had two new people, two new men who showed up today, and um and um, they were welcomed by the group, and you know, I think they got a lot, enough out of it to where they'll be coming back next time. So that tells us a little bit about the men's groups meeting at our local parishes, but uh, the Catholic Men's Fellowship, what are you trying to accomplish through the Catholic Men's Fellowship? So I work with the Central Texas Fellowship of Catholic Men, which is a diocesan um, group, and um, we are committed to—our um, slogan is, no man left behind. In other words, we want every man in every parish of the diocese to have an opportunity to join a fellowship of Catholic men. And th when I say that, that's it, this is a little bit different than the Knights of Columbus or a Bible study. Um, its purpose is for men to become better disciples of Christ— through prayer, study, and fellowship. So um, where Knights of the Com Columbus's uh, fellowship and service, um, we really focus as much attention on prayer and study, and that's a big distinction. What we do find is that men who get involved in fellowship groups uh, tend to also join Knights of Columbus if they're not a knight already. So they're very complementary. And uh, I saw a statistic the other day that said it, men that have a reversion to the Catholic Church, over 80% of the families follow them. That's right. That's right. So we believe that many of the things that many of the social ills that we see um, in and around both inside the church and outside the church is a result of men not being disciplined. 
and not taking that leadership role in their families and also in society. So part of what we're trying to do is to ensure that men know their role in their families and in society, and to strengthen men to know that God's calling them to a higher purpose. Um, So we hope that through this, we're building better families, better churches, and better society. And I think uh, the opportunity to join with other men that are dealing with the same issues that we are, and perhaps learning how they deal with those things can be beneficial to all of us. You couldn't have said that any better. In fact, one of the things that we believe very strongly is that men develop through their relationships with other men. Um, And as much as we stay to ourselves, we never grow and develop. You know, there's a Proverbs, um, iron sharpens iron. So we believe that it's when men come together and they're committed to their faith, but when they're come together through with others, that they actually grow in their faith. Now, coming up, uh, we will have the men's mass in July for the diocese also. Um, are the men's groups going to this? Yes. Um, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up. That men's mass, uh, which is celebrated for men of the diocese, is going to be July 13th at the St. John Newman Catholic Church in West Lake Hills, Texas, which is a part of Austin. And that Mass will begin at 10 a.m. So we'll begin communicating a little bit more about that here in the coming weeks. But it's usually a very powerful event where you have a 1,000-plus men come to Mass at one time and, um, and give worship to God. And when you hear that many men come together and say the Our Father all at one time, it'll make the hair on the back of your neck raise. <laughs> and I think this is one of the things that we need these visuals, because the story you hear so often is the church is driven by the women that attend. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the way it should be. It should be equal. It should be just as many men as women involved in the day-to-day works of the church. Correct, correct. So one of the other outcomes that we've seen by men who get involved in fellowship groups is that they find where they can better serve in the church. Um, We see more who become lectors. We see more who become Eucharistic ministers, more who sign up to teach catechism, for example. So it has a knock-on effect because men see that they are being called to more, to do more, once they begin to learn what their faith is asking of them. And I'm sure that's probably a big selling point when you come to a pastor and you say, we want to encourage men to join this, that the pastor goes, okay, what's in this for the parish? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, what um, we have talked to groups of priests and those that have had experience with fellowship groups will tell the other priest, this is something you really need to introduce into your parish. And so, By word of mouth, um, priests do want this in their parish, and they do see the benefits of having a fellowship group once one is up and going. So what do you tell one of our listeners who's listening to this and thinking to himself, well, I really don't need one other thing to add to my calendar? (laughs) How would you encourage them to change their mind about this and tell them this is worthwhile doing? What I would tell them is that— they don't know what they're missing if they carve just a little bit of time to give us a try. 
In fact, um, I'm thinking of an individual in, in our group right now um, who, who has made the comment, I never remember reading about some of these teachings of our faith, and why did I wait so long to learn and study this and talk to other men about it? And he said, I wished I would have learned about these things when I was a younger man. It would have helped me tremendously. Um, so it is interesting to see that once men avail themselves, avail the time to come and be a part of one of these fellowship groups, they'll begin to see how God is allowing the time so that they grow in areas of their life that they didn't expect. And they begin to make relationships with other men that are very fruitful, um, which can have benefits all of its own. And you raise an important point. We have so much confusion about what the church actually teaches because we tend to get most of our information from Facebook and Twitter and the secular news. And so this men's fellowship provides an opportunity to get the truth, mm -hmm. to listen. This is actually what the church teaches on these things. And what you may have heard is not really what the church teaches. Correct. Correct. Yeah, the materials that we use are all um, church-approved materials, and um, we have a repository of resources that we can draw upon, but we ensure that anything that we use is according to the full teaching of our, our Catholic faith. And again, this is for any man listening out there that would like to get more involved and learn more about their faith. Join one of the groups at your local parish. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't encourage it more. That if people just take that leap of faith, they'll be amazed at um, what they can begin to learn about their faith. And also through those stories of other men and the struggles they've had, but also to see how God has worked in their lives through some of the trials that they've had um, to really make a, a bigger difference in their lives. And I think, again, back to that topic of other men being involved in this, having the opportunity to listen to other men who have dealt with the same struggles we deal with and have overcome them and sometimes still struggling with them but have ways of dealing with the day-to-day -day problems that we face in our culture, trying to live out our faith and being encouraged through Cor the other men. Correct, correct. In fact, one of the things that we encourage men to do is as we begin each session, is to think about the topic, but also think about what is God calling you to take from this discussion to make a difference of something you're not doing in your life. So it's like an accountability, but it's something made privately by the man, uh, a commitment that they want to take where God is speaking to their heart from that discussion that we've had with them. And also, of course, there's always that encouragement for the men to take a leadership role in the families, to keep them in touch with the, their faith, to lead them into the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, we, uh, in addition to our discussions, we also spend time at the, at the end of each session of prayer, um, praying for each man's intentions, not only at that session, but committed to uh, make those prayer intentions part of our daily prayer each day of the week until we meet again the following week. Well, thank you, Michael Bonin, for coming on the air and encouraging the men in our area to participate in the Catholic Men's Fellowship, the Central Texas yeah. Fellowship of Catholic Men. And um, I hope everybody listening out there 
heard that they would like to do this. As soon as we come back, we will be talking to Michael Rea. And as I mentioned, that's a pre-recorded segment, so we won't be able to take any phone calls. So we'll see you on the other side of the break. All right. Thank you, Deacon Mike. And we're back. I'm your host, uh, Deacon Mike Beauvais. We're on the Red Sea Roundup. And as promised, we are going to be talking with Michael Rea about beauty and architecture and all things related to our reach for God through the eyes of beauty. Um, Again, a reminder, we're not live. This is a pre-recorded programming, so we won't be able to take any phone calls. But um, I'm still excited that we have our listeners out there, and uh, I wanted to welcome Michael Rea. Michael, how are you this morning? I'm great. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Now, just to introduce you to our listeners, give us a little bit about your background, and uh, the name Rea is familiar in the Austin Diocese, so... (laughs) Yes, some listeners may know uh, my brother, Father Jonathan Rea, who is the Director of Vocations and Seminarians for the Diocese of Austin. Spends a lot of time in College Station here, um, as I do. Um, Got a little bit of uh, time under my belt now working on some of the design projects on the campus um, at A&M and here at St. Mary's and um, get to spend a lot of time in, in College Station myself. So, uh, Father Jonathan and I often uh, literally or figuratively pass each other um, on Highway 21 and Highway 71 between Austin and College Station. Um, my background is in architecture. Um, I did a lot of ministry, a lot of um, kind of discipleship ministry, youth ministry, young adult ministry for many years. Um, in college, I studied architecture, I have a degree in architecture, and uh, was practicing that for a firm in Austin doing a lot of work for the diocese for the past um, six, seven years um, prior to starting my own company. Um, a little bit more than a year ago, I stepped out and decided to create a design consultancy specializing in work for Catholic clients. Uh, so I work a lot with the Diocese of Austin and several other dioceses in Texas and a few out of state, um, but a, about a 12-year background doing design work, project management for an architecture firm, and now doing design consulting. Um, the journey that led me there was uh, a calling to go and study liturgy more deeply to really understand the why behind the what of sacred architecture. Why do we build the way we do? Um, And I just uh, graduated last weekend from the the Liturgical Institute, uh, University of St. Mary of the Lake, colloquially known around the Chicago area as Mundelein Seminary, um, and uh, a wonderful program there, the Liturgical Institute that grants uh, graduate degrees in liturgical sacramental theology. So I have a Master of Arts in Liturgy with a concentration in sacred art and architecture. Uh, and that was a wonderful five-year experience, a summer program designed for professionals uh, to go and study liturgy apart from their, their daily lives and their day jobs. Now, what comes to mind uh, when you first, as a young man, started going to church, there must have been something that impacted your interest in the architecture, in the environment of that. Do you, can you pinpoint when 
you first became uh, started to notice this? Certainly. Uh, you know, it's funny. It seems like the grass is always greener between cradle Catholics and converts, you know, and, and each uh, each side might have a an envy of the experience of the others um, growing up in the church or, you know, coming to this newfound adult appreciation. Mine was the former. I uh, grew up in the church, grew up Catholic, um, kind of a standard um, Texas suburban Catholic upbringing, if you will. So you can imagine, like many of us who grew up in those parishes, the architecture was not very inspiring. Um, although, in fairness, looking back, the liturgy was was pretty good. There were some things that were surprisingly good looking back and remembering, wow, there was great care for the liturgy. There was great reverence um, in the way that the sacraments were celebrated, even at that crazy time uh, in the early 80s where a lot of other funny things were happening. Um, there there were some good, good spots looking back, but the church was relatively uninspiring. Um, my mom is from a town called Weimar on the path I tend between uh, Houston and San Antonio. And Weimar has one of the largest churches built kind of in the early 1900s by an architect, uh, Leo Dielman, who did a lot of work around San Antonio and central Texas and designed a lot of our beautiful churches, including St. Mary's and Brenham. And uh, St. Michael's in Weimar uh, was sort of a place that I would love to go whenever we were visiting family um, because it was so different than the um, kind of modern suburban uh, church context that, you know, many of us had. It was this uh, reminder of this other time where there was this glory of Catholicism, this inspiring beauty. Um, and it always bothered me that it, it was sort of treated like a museum artifact, that it was almost collecting dust uh, or it was collecting dust in many ways, um, but it, it, there wasn't an engagement. Why, you know, why is this no longer relevant to our faith? Why do we treat it as though it has nothing to speak to us? And that disconnect, I think, really sat with me um, for quite a while until I discerned the calling to really re-engage the tradition and understand the power that beauty has uh, to be a part of our evangelization, to lead us into the truths that God has to uh, reveal to us, the grace that he has to offer us in the sacraments. So that's really what I've been trying to do the last few years. And uh, understand um, the magnitude, the enormity of the, the the teaching and the tradition that the church has, um, and what that tradition, all of our sacred buildings, what they have to say to us and to offer to us. Which, uh, thinking of what you had said about you know the impact that one church in Weimar had, Saint Michael's had on uh, your understanding of what uh, beauty really is, uh, as far as the churches are concerned. Speak a little bit about the importance of keeping that in mind when you're thinking of designing a church. What exactly is it that you're trying to have as your foundational thought in, you know, we're going to design this church? What are we trying to communicate just with the design? Sure. That's a great question. Um, and there's a lot to consider there. I, I think the the framework that I try to keep in mind um, comes to us from our last two Holy Fathers, um, Pope St. John Paul II and, um, and Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus. Um, I think a lot of times in different areas of the church's apostolate, we suffer from and kind of uh, in some ways nurture an unfortunate divorce between um, the efforts in evangelization and discipleship and a, a renewal of the liturgy um, and a reclamation of the beauty of the sacraments and sacramentals. And a lot of times I think we act as though those are um, strange bedfellows or that they're just at odds with each other, that they're mutually exclusive and uh, quite the contrary. Um, and, and I think looking to 
the teachings and the writings of those those last two holy fathers, um, we have a really good roadmap for how to approach this in a comprehensive way. Um, so a lot of my business with my firm uh, is approaching renewal in a comprehensive way for the church. So this is engaging um, in uh, renewal of the liturgy and the sacraments and sacramentals alongside this work in evangelization and discipleship. And looking first at the theology of beauty, um, Pope St. John Paul II spoke uh, a lot about the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, that beauty is this privileged pathway for evangelization, that it leads to an encounter with the truth. It leads us to say, wow, that's incredible. What is that? I want to know more. What is the why behind the what? So the beauty is the what, um, our teaching, the doctrine is the why. And then that is what leads us into a path to holiness. And if Vatican II was all about holiness, this path of sanctification, morality then is not what we lead with. We don't lead with telling people the rules. That comes after we're bought in as disciples, which comes after we've experienced the glory and the beauty and the inspiration of the faith. Um, building upon that Pope uh, Benedict XVI wrote uh, about the mystagogical catechesis of the church, this ongoing uh, looking deeper at the mysteries that are made present to us in the liturgy, in our rites, and in the sacraments. And Pope Benedict gave us a framework, a three-part framework for mystagogical catechesis, the instruction of the faithful about um, all of the beauty and the majesty that's made present for us in the church via her sacraments and liturgy. And that framework, I think, is really, really helpful um, to keep in mind when we're talking to people about liturgy and evangelization side by side. How do these things work together? The first part is understanding the, the meaning of the rites and all the liturgy, the sacraments within the context of salvation history. How does this matter in terms of what God has done in the Old Testament, uh, what he did in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, what he is doing in the church, what will come um, with the eschaton at the end of time? Um, then it's understanding the specific signs and symbols contained within the rites. What does Alpha and Omega mean? What is, what is the lamb? Why do we speak about the lamb on the throne? You know, what do all these things mean? What is the meaning of water uh, with regard to baptism? And what is all the symbolism that that carries with it? And then finally, the third part is an application of the rites to daily living. How does the rubber meet the road? We're called to be holy. Um, if Vatican II was about the universal call to holiness via active participation in liturgy, um, how does all this come together? How does the liturgy actually affect and bring about and encourage our sanctification, our holiness? And how does that actually cause us to be people of love and peace and justice? Um, so really, when we're talking about liturgy, we're talking about evangelization and discipleship. They should never be separated. And the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, is our lead in to even have that discussion, to inspire people with beauty to say, yes, this is right. There's something about this that speaks to me. We need to do more of this. How do we do that? Then we can have the conversation about teaching and morality. One question I had in my mind uh especially since the fire at Notre Dame during Holy Week. And you were talking about uh, the connection between the liturgy and beauty and um, catechesis, evangelization. And we saw see so much of that concept in the Gothic cathedrals. And even in some of the older churches, so the painted churches here in Texas, and um, even... Our, my home parish, St. Anthony's, uh, the emphasis on beauty. How did we get from that to some of the churches built during the 70s and the 80s that there seems to be no emphasis whatsoever on the actual beauty of the environment? 
have you studied anything about how that disconnect came? Certainly. I think it's really important that we understand the context. Um, I'll qualify my response in, in two ways. The first is that um, while all those who um, receive a degree in any type of architectural field, any, any degree in architecture, uh, we study architecture history. I'm not an architectural historian. There is a separate discipline. So if there are any amateur or professional architecture historians out there, forgive me uh, for perhaps a clumsy treatment here. Um, I think it's important that we we uh, study the history in a way that understands the context at the time. And that I think is more of a, an anthropological approach, if you will, understanding the human condition, um, not in isolation from, you know, let's look at this building from the 1500s and just, uh, gauge it with our, our current, you know, sort of modern understanding and sensibilities. Um, so, you know, those two things being said that I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert in both of those fields. I think it's important for us to, um, in an amateur way for us all to understand, to, to study and, and learn to love our history. Um, I think it's really important as well that we understand then the context uh, that the church um, found herself in um, at the time of the council and leading up to it. And I think it's really easy for us to romanticize this golden age of the church, um, particularly to look at things that outwardly seemed very robust, very healthy, um, and to forget that there were a lot of things within the church where there was decay um, sort of in, in, in that was going unnoticed um, that led to the vocations in crisis um, and, and the culture, I think, particularly in the United States after Vatican, after Vatican II, that embraced um, sort of a, a spirit of uh, rupture, if you will, to, to kind of draw upon Benedict XVI, a break from the tradition and to say, well, here's what we think beauty is. Beauty to me is... You know, and anyone who is um, steeped in Catholic teaching knows beauty to me is a phrase that we shouldn't necessarily be as comfortable using as we probably are. That's relativism. Um, and that is the dictatorship of relativism that our Holy Fathers have warned us about. Beauty is an objective thing. Beauty is a revelation of God. Um, and so I think we have to approach beauty in an objective way. And I think prior to the council, that was much more a part of our societies. It was much more a part of our church and our teaching. Um, I think that was taken for granted in a lot of ways. And so when people began to be more formed by the ideas of society, the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, uh, everything that was happening in the U.S. in the 60s, um, the soil uh, was, was sort of prepared for a false gospel and a gospel of self, a gospel of relativism. Um, and I think the church herself not only was fighting that, but sub succumbed to it in a lot of areas particularly in sacred architecture. And the church acted as though she had nothing to say from her 2000 year tradition about beauty and its objectivity um, and acted as though the outside architects who had been um, sort of indoctrinated with this modern thinking of a deeply um, anti-sacramental and in many ways iconoclastic sort of approach that those experts had something to teach the church and the church needed to get with the times. And so that's really what began happening. Um, there's also a really interesting portion of our history where there's an engagement and a dialogue with um, our Protestant brothers and sisters and some of the things that were happening there. And so again, you have an anti-sacramental sort of grappling, how do we share this, this commonality with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not in the fold of the Catholic Church? 
So there were a lot of things happening architecturally in those other churches that um, Catholics, I think, were eager to embrace and perhaps a little too eager to let go of some of our own great ideas about sacred art and architecture um, in a desire to be more mainstream, particularly here in the South, where we see a heavy, heavy influence of Protestantism in our in our design. And I think that's still happening today in many cases. Uh, based on what we were just talking about uh in part, a bit of misplaced ecumenism, a bit of wanting to fit into the world around us rather than uh, showing the world around us the beauty of what's possible, uh, brings to mind, uh, again, the fire at Notre Dame and the effort to rebuild it. And I sense that uh, just from the conversations I've read and some of the images I've seen, that there's a distinct possibility that part of the rebuilding process is going to at least consider that false ecumenism, that wanting to uh, engage a wider cultural influence in the rebuilding. Have you given any thought to your view on this? Sure. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot happening with Notre Dame right now, um, and so I'll try to try to avoid getting into too many specifics where I'm in over my head. Again, not being an architectural historian, um, um, you know, I think it's important to understand the developments um, that led us to Gothic architecture um, and understanding how it was um, expressing this way of beauty and how it was intended to evangelize. Um, Gothic tradition was born out of the, the Romanesque tradition, and uh, the Romanesque tradition was much heavier and more massive and um, was really ubiquitous throughout the, the the Roman Empire, and you know those familiar with the Byzantine uh, kind of Byzantine flair, Romanesque. Um, you know the Holy Roman Empire really began began using this, and in a lot of different regions, and particularly in the crossroads between East and West. So that's part of a common you know tradition that's shared there. The Gothic really was particularly Western and grew um, as this. Um, as the church was growing, the Western church was growing and sort of centralized in power, the, the marriage of church and state. Um, so again, there's a lot there to study in history to understand how it came about and how the church was really able to be the patron of the arts uh, that we knew her to be for several hundred years. And so with Gothic, you have this, um, instead of being low and massive and kind of spread out, you have this emphasis on verticality, really beginning to point us to heaven. Um, those who have been in, in a Roman basilica before, you know, the long um, sort of nave with the side aisles, the, the axis is really linear. It points us to the end. And that church historically, in most cases, would point east. It would kind of remind us to look to the rising sun, um, to, to look to Jerusalem. Um, and then with the Gothic architecture, you really have, you still have that long nave, but it really becomes very, very tall. And it's to point us to heaven. Um, thinking of the the spires, you know, that just seemingly pierce the clouds because they're so, so tall and they're uh, many times taller than any other building in the landscape. Um, the stone was pulled apart and glass was introduced, you know, a lot more stained glass to bring in light and color. And so many of the ideas about the new heavenly Jerusalem um, sacramentalizing, if you will, making visible an invisible reality of the heavenly city, which we'll all be members of, 
um, making that reality present here on earth, that idea was evolving and Gothic architecture was, was, um, finding ways to express that through, um, stone, uh, angels and saints and things like that. And garden imagery and the fulfillment of the garden of Eden here on earth, you know, stepping foot in the new, the new temple, which is the fulfillment of the garden of Eden. So Gothic architecture was, was bringing forward many of those developments and enjoying some of the benefits of, um, the, the support of the state and, you know, not a lot of persecution uh, to speak of. And when we look at Notre Dame, I think we have to remember that history, but we also have to keep in mind that um, there are some tricky things there with uh, everything politically that happened in France thereafter, the fact that the the cathedral itself is owned by the state. Um, I think many of us have probably seen the recent proposals uh, showing, um, you know, many different options for replacing the roof structure with glass. Um, and thinking of this as as a public building, um, it's easy for us to say, no, it's a church. And absolutely it is a church, but certainly there's some more complexity with the fact that it's it's owned by the state. And so my hope is that the state says, even though we do own this, let's think about um, its, its use, its history, and its uh, main tenant, if you will, which is the Catholic church. What is this for? It's a sacramental building. Um, so by its very nature, it's a public building, but it's not a public building in the way a shopping mall or some other mixed use development would be. Um, liturgy itself is, is a public act. It's an act of public worship, but the architectural tradition has a lot to say about that. So my sincere hope would be that would be a dialogue and we could say, what is liturgy? What's, what, what happens inside of a church building and what needs to happen then inside of Notre Dame? And how is that also reflected outside? How is the inside reflected on the outside and every bit of it top to bottom reflective of its, its history um, in a continuity um, that speaks properly to you know, the nature of the liturgy and the sacraments? Which, going back to your regular job, when someone comes to you about building a new church or a new sanctuary, and uh, I'm sure that everyone that does that has some vision of what they would like it to look like, where do you start providing guidance as to making sure that this communicates what you want it to communicate? And um, how do you start that conversation? That's a great question. I'll try to summarize. Um, there are a handful of points, I think, that are really important to try to make. One is that a church building is a sacramental, if you will, or it has a sacramental dimension or quality. It's making present uh, something that is invisible. It's making it visible. It's making it tangible so that we can experience it. So first and foremost, a church building is supposed to sacramentalize the invisible realities of the liturgy and the sacraments. Um, that's what a church is. Its ontology is to be this sacramentalization, this making visible the invisible um, or seeing the unseen. And uh, that's actually right there at the beginning of the rite of dedication of a church and an altar. Actually, it was just re-released by the, the USCCB. It's now the order of dedication of a church and an altar. And number one says that, um, that we are to design our church buildings in a way that they remind us that we are the mystical body of Christ built of living stones. So now the church building is the physical stones that reminds us of how we are to be as a people of God. And so the things that we want to say about ourselves as a church and as a, as a micro church, as a, as a parish family, um, those are the things that need to be evident in the church building. So that's kind of one of the first things. Another is that Tradition is really important to us. We don't have the option of discarding tradition. 
However, the, the other side of that coin is that tradition is not static. It's not stagnant. It's a living tradition. And so we need to find ourselves in a place where we can attach to that tradition. Um, and in a sense, every, uh, outgrowth or expression of that tradition furthers it and it's a development. So this is not a static um, museum piece that's collecting dust and or a rubber stamp that we rebuild something that was built in another time and place. Um, so those are a few of the ideas. I think another one is that um, style is way, way down the line. That's, that's a preference. And so before we start talking about specifics about um, my preference for design style and color and I like Gothic or I like Romanesque or, you know, this is the style of stained glass that speaks to me. Those are all, um, those are relative things. Those are, those are personal, they're subjective. And before we talk about any of the subjective, we have to talk about the objective what is a church? What does it mean that a church is to, supposed to be this great collection of sacramentals within the, within the, um, the life of the church, the sacramental life? Um, how can the church um, further this via pulchritudinous, this way of beauty? How can it be the, um, the privileged pathway for evangelization and catechesis? How can it lead people to be disciples of Jesus Christ by saying, what is the why behind the what? I see the church building. I see the what. Now I want to know the why. And I want to figure out how to live in a way that I can be a part of this beauty, that I can experience the grace of these sacraments. Um, those are all the things that a church needs to do. So before we get into those subjective um, discussions about preference, I think we really have to be on the same page about what is a church? What is a liturgy? What are we supposed to be doing as human beings and disciples of Jesus Christ, you know, to be led into relationship with the Father to enter again that divine dialogue of love of the Trinity, all of those things need to be present in the conversation way before we start talking about the specifics of design, which I think is what is gotten wrong a lot of times in the process. We start with the subjective and we get off track quickly. I really like what you said about the fact that the subjective aspect of this isn't the starting point, but that we start with what is the purpose here? What is, are we trying to uh, build? And uh, the thought I had is if we didn't allow for some change, we'd still, everybody would build a Roman church. Yeah, that's We right. wouldn't even have the Gothic cathedrals because they were a change. And so, you know, change is not necessarily bad in designing a church Correct. because beauty has many expressions because God is infinite. So, but it's starting on the solid foundation that's important and then building from that upward. That's right. Um, does it happen often that uh, when you begin the process of designing a sanctuary, designing a church, that as you go, you realize that certain parts of this communicate beauty better than others and that perhaps you need to go a slightly different direction in your design. Certainly. Um, I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can approach the idea of expressing the nature of a church building. Um, and your audience hopefully will forgive me. Um, church building would be kind of the language that the, the Catholic church uses because it precisely because a church building is that um, built form of the, the invisible reality of that mystical body of Christ. And so we um, quite quite appropriately call our buildings churches with the lowercase C because they, um, they make present or visible the reality of the, the church, the body of Christ. Um, 
one of the dimensions I think that we can make sense of this um, with is through the temple theology that comes to us through the Old Testament tradition and and understanding that that wasn't done away with, um, with the sacrifice of Christ and everything that he's done in the church, but it's actually fulfilled. And so finding a way to reclaim that temple tradition, I think, is is a really, really good one um, to say that present in every church building, every Catholic church building that we design and, and construct needs to be some form of fulfillment of the the ritual temple tradition, that that uh, tradition of sacrifice, ritual worship, because Jesus himself was a part of that tradition, um, and it was a part of the, the Jewish people for, for centuries before. Um, so we've mentioned the word um, sanctuary, and properly speaking, the sanctuary would be the place within the body of the church uh, that would mirror the holy of holies, if you will. So the three-part temple structure would be the front porch, the holy place, which is the large body of the temple in which the priests uh, would perform some of their acts, and then the holy of holies, where um, in the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, and only the high priest once a year, the Day of Atonement, would be able to go in. So we see that tripartite or three-part structure mirrored or echoed in our Catholic church design in the narthex, um, uh, sort of paralleling the porch, uh, the sanctuary or the uh, nave of the church, the body, the word nave comes to us from ship, like the upside down hull of a ship, reminding us that we're in this journey of faith in the bark of Peter, um, and literally quite, you know, in, in the boat with Peter, if you will. Um, and then the sanctuary, which was uh, the Holy of Holies. And so we have our new Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle in, uh, in the Holy of Holies, our, our sanctuary. So, the language sometimes, again, particularly for those of us here in the South, um, gets used interchangeably. Um, our Protestant brothers and sisters will call their places of worship sanctuaries. Um, but for us, you know, we understand that the Eucharistic sacrifice happens in a specific way on the altar and our sanctuary proper. And the whole building has that three-part participation where the narthex is our transition uh, to begin to come, to offer our hearts. Um, the holy place is that the, the nave, the body of the church, where we as priests of Jesus Christ, the common priesthood of all believers, those baptized into the church, can come to offer our sacrifice like the Levitical priests would come and and offer they would the altar of incense, the, the showbread, um, all of these other acts of sacrifice. And then the high priest um, in the person of Jesus Christ is there in the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary, offering that sacrifice for us. It's our atonement, if you will, um, that is then brought out to us and we consume. So I think that temple theology um, is really important. I'll give a quick um, nod to um, a man who's taught me a great deal about all this, uh, Dr. Dennis McNamara. So some of your listeners might be familiar with Dr. McNamara, his podcast, The Liturgy Guys, um, some of his great books, um, Catholic Church Architecture in the Spirit of the Liturgy, or How to Read Churches. And he talks quite a bit about this temple theology. So a lot of what I've um, been able to, to study and to learn is, is due to uh, Dennis's great efforts. Listening to you, and uh, especially uh, the whole notion of assembly and the temple uh, mound, uh, we so often tend to forget that the word ecclesia basically means assembly of people coming together. Yes. And um, I have not heard it put quite as succinctly as you that that temple uh, history of our faith that Jesus was part of is in a way communicated in our churches. Absolutely. The assembly of the people, if you will. Um, I sort of joke that we this, this assembly is the body of Christ. That has deeply um, 
anthropomorphic associations associated with the structure, the nature of the structure of the body. So we're not the amoeba of Christ or the, the pancake of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And it's, it's quite literally one of the reasons why so many of our churches um, came to be shaped like crosses. And there was an instruction in the church, actually from St. Charles Borromeo, um, for uh, for churches to be uh, cruciform for this reason. And a lot of scholars have written about that, that um, you can see any church in the world and understand, wow, this is the place where the body of Christ dwells. And specifically within liturgy, it's where we are made the body of Christ. We assemble as members in Christ's body, and then we are made into that body by being sharers in his sacrifice. We we crawl up onto the cross with Christ in a sense. Um, so when we go and we sit down, we're thinking of that as ascending and being elevated and being crucified on the cross with Christ. And the Eucharist is our sacrifice. So when that Paschal victim is, is raised up, we're raised up with him. Um, and we give ourselves in sacrifice so that we can be given back. Uh, the Father gives us back to ourselves better than we were before. Christ is, is transfigured, um, prefiguring his resurrection and glorification. In the same way, we experience that transfiguration um, we are glorified through liturgy, anticipating our final glorification after our resurrection in Christ. And so it's very important, I think, that we remember the church building is a place where all this happens. It's not the place where we just remember what happened 2,000 years ago at the Last Supper or on the cross. It's a place where it happens. It happens over again, uh, once and for all, uh, e- eternally. We, we attach to that sacrifice that is happening um, in Calvary and in heaven, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, we are brought to that reality. And so we are not this um, amorphous assemblage of parts. We are the body of Christ and we're structured, and the building needs to flect that reality as well. And I think that takes us right back to our beginning of the conversation on the connection between evangelization and <laughs> architecture. Absolutely. Because that whole sense of the cruciform structure of the church building and the idea that by our presence there, we are placing ourselves on the cross or in the cross because we do participate in that suffering, that we enter Amen. into that. And so I think that's a beautiful way to come to a full circle in our discussion about architecture. And I cannot believe we've already run to the end of our time. Um I want to thank you very much for being here. Uh, thank you. Because I think this is an important thing that uh, we tend not to think about. We go to church on Sundays and we're just there. But uh, hopefully all our listeners will have the opportunity now to take a look around and see what is trying to be communicated in the, your church. Everything in the church building should be encouraging us to make our sacrifice. And if there's nothing else that we do in the Mass, if we miss the readings and we're distracted for the homily, if we don't uh, sing along with the music, that one thing that we need to do, that, that Paschal act, is to put ourselves on the altar, on the patent, to be, to be raised up with Christ, to join our offering to His that is a sacrifice of, cra- of praise. That is our, our offering on the cross with Christ, and hopefully our church buildings remind us to do that every time we walk in the front doors. Uh, again, I want to thank you very much for being here. We were talking to Michael Brea, and uh, in the next week's program, uh, Gene Wilhelm will be your host. I hope everyone will be able to join Gene in the next roundup. In the meantime, while considering the many ways that we can offer our time, talent, and treasure to God, always roundup. up.